What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 194. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we start with a discussion about social media and how we're using it these days. But for the rest of the show, we talk about a great way photogrammetry is being used from a recent paper. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. Paul, how's it going? It's going pretty good, actually. I uh, still own unemployed, but that means that I've been getting, you know, a lot of time to do things around the house after being gone, you know, half of last year. And uh, <laughs> I've had all yeah. sorts of different projects, things that I wasn't able to work on that have been percolating. And so I, uh, I've just been on this great creative streak. The uh, the software, the Total Station software that I've been working on forever is in great shape and it's up on GitHub mm -hmm. and I'm trying to figure out how to publicize it because I've been off of Twitter for the last few weeks because I got so fed up with it. Um, <laughs> and uh, that would normally be my go-to. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know, I've, I've had time to not doom scrolling uh, to do other things. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been good. I mean, just the weirdest little things. Like I had um, an exporter for the data that worked mm -hmm. great with QGIS, and I had a note to myself to, to test it with ArcGIS. I couldn't do that in the field because I didn't have ArcGIS on my computer in the field, but I've got it on an extra computer I've got here at home. So I tried it, and it didn't work. No surprise. And then just kind of Googling something randomly, I found that there was a Python package for creating shapefiles. I was like, oh, that's hmm. interesting. I looked at it. It was easy. Converted that whole exporter from exporting CSV to shapefiles. Now it works with my QGIS and it works with ArcGIS. And then I'm like, well, you know, now that I've got it working so beautifully with QGIS, I spent a couple of days and built a QGIS plugin to uh, to do the imports from the uh, from the exported data. And it's just all kind of coming together like that. Nice. I'm sitting here working on a little sensor that I'm going to uh, build modules of for uh, Raspberry Pi Pico with um, a temperature and barometric pressure sensor. And maybe I might integrate that into my software too. Um, you know, just exploring lots of little things and wow, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Let, let me <laughs> ask you about Chris? Twitter real quick. Well, oh, let yeah. me ask you about Twitter yeah, yeah. real quick because mm -hmm. you're, 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 you use Twitter a lot more than I do. I don't know if you'd consider yourself a power user, but you definitely use it a lot more than I do. Mm-hmm. It was a while back, but when I was more heavily into Twitter, I had all these lists and and groups and and what do you call them? Not groups, but I guess lists. And then like like uh, I used uh, I used an app. Was it Hootsuite or something like that? Where mm -hmm. you can have just different columns and you can have those filtered to a hashtag or filtered to a list of people that you follow or something like that. And I never, I almost never like just went to 
you know, like regular, just Twitter, you know, whatever, whatever's on there and just scrolled random stuff. So all these people saying, you know, Oh, Twitter's gotten all crazy and it's, you know, it's all conservative and the, the racism has gone up and all this has gone up. But like, if you don't follow those people and they're not in your lists, how would you ever even see any of that stuff? You know what I mean? Like you curate your own mm-hmm. content if you want to, do you use Twitter in that way? Are you seeing all this other crazy stuff that's, you know, the no, Elon Musk using, effect? <laughs> I wasn't using it in the way that, uh, that you're talking about. I basically, you know, I followed a bunch of people, a couple thousand maybe, and mm-hmm. I had about 1500 followers and would, uh, you know, things would just show up on my feed. And if it looked interesting, I'd get involved in it. It might be a political discussion more often than not, or lately it would be an archaeological discussion. But then I also get uh, direct messages from a lot of people because I've got them open. Uh, So, you know, I'll have archaeology students ask me questions on it, and I take time to actually try to answer as best as I can, uh, you know, what they're asking. Mm Mm-hmm. So I've, you know, I've expanded my network of people I interact with uh, quite a bit with that. And a lot of people who are a lot younger than me, which is interesting because it uh, it opens my eyes to, you know, maybe keep my brain a little bit more limber, but it opens my eyes to, to ways that maybe I wasn't raised to think, but that uh, are interesting nonetheless. All that said, yeah, I started seeing an uptick of bots and some really kind of just vile, you know, conservative mm-hmm. stuff that I can't go along with. Sure. And my DMs were getting pummeled, absolutely pummeled really? with with bot accounts. And it stopped being about the conversations I was having. And the conversations all started being conversations about Twitter. <laughs> and okay. that was not interesting to me. I mean, I thought that right. was kind of fun to watch the train wreck of it. But it was it, it wasn't improving my life in any in any meaningful way. So I was like, you know what? Mm-hmm. Let me just take a break from this. And that's been yeah. a few weeks, and I haven't missed it, with the exception of I, I've lost certain connections. I, like I said, I've been on this creative streak, and that's in large part, I think, facilitated by not wasting time on that social media platform. But I don't have a good way of telling people about it. I mean, I'm telling you about it and I'm telling our listeners about it right now. Uh, mm-hmm. And hopefully I get some engagement that way. But my typical way of, uh, of announcing something that interests me and getting responses to it would have been on Twitter. And, you know, we use that to great effect in, uh, in the field this last season. But <laughs> I've now cut that <laughs> off for myself. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I just, I got fed up with it. It, it just, it okay. wasn't fun anymore. And I'd already noticed that I, I initially started using it because I was getting all sorts of information about the Yemeni war from people living in Yemen. Mm, right. And one by one, those people dropped off. I don't know if they died, if they went to jail, if uh, they got Jeez. fed up with it. I have no idea what happened. And now I hardly ever get any Yemen news. And wow. you know, I get some political stuff and I get a lot of, uh, of cultural stuff around archaeology you know, in, the, in its broadest sense. And that's been great. Mm-hmm. But it's just at the moment, it, I can't deal with all the other garbage. And I've looked at other things. You know, a lot of people moved over to Mastodon, and I set up a Mastodon account on the Archeo.social Federated, whatever it's called. And mm-hmm. it misses for me what I really liked about Twitter, which was that fire hose of different people and ideas and things that are going to get me upset and things that, you know. 
if I go to the Mastodon pages, it's a bunch of people that I'm friendly with and basically agree with. And it, it just doesn't challenge you. Yeah, it doesn't challenge me, but it also, yeah. I don't mean that like in an intellectual sense. I mean, it doesn't stimulate me in the same sort of way. Mm. If I want to have an archaeological discussion, that's wonderful, but that's not the only reason why I was going to Twitter. I was doing that for archaeology, yeah. but like I said, with those uh, students direct messaging me, more often than not, the really interesting discussions would happen not with another archaeologist, but somebody that was interested in archaeology. And hmm. they're not necessarily going to be on that Mastodon server. Right. Okay. Well, I will tell you one place that uh, – another thing I want to bring up before we get to the the article for the day is – and this is only because I've seen you guys having a really good discussion in the last little bit here, last couple of days. But over on our members Slack team, if you're not a member, go over to rpodnet.com forward slash members. One of the – I would say primary benefits that you get. And it's one of these benefits that just gets better and better the more people get on involved with it. And the Archaeotech channel over there for our members Slack team, we got a couple of people over there that like to really say a lot of things, especially one of the people who's been a former guest here, um, Wouter Yipperman, and he's over in Belgium. Uh, he's an archaeologist. And you guys were having a discussion about one of our last episodes. You care to discuss anything that you guys talked about? Yeah, so um, he uh, commented that he liked Marco, uh, Marco Wolf, who was the, uh, the last yeah. person I interviewed on this podcast. Uh, he liked Marco saying, no, he doesn't see himself as a digital archaeologist. And this, you know, that's fine. I um, I started out that uh, episode talking about how we are really calling into question the utility of the term digital archaeology. Yeah. But that said, Marco you, me, a lot of people that we talk to on, you know, people that we've interviewed on this podcast, uh, Walter himself, are people who are very comfortable with digital techniques to the point mm -hmm. sometimes that we're uncomfortable with non-digital techniques. Walter thought that that was a, an interesting response from, uh, from Marco. Yeah. But then more so, uh, I asked Marco toward the end if, uh, because Marco also does uh, CRM work, well, the equivalent of CRM work in Germany. And- mm -hmm asked him if he's allowed to use the various digital techniques he's most comfortable with or if it's you know rules and regulated to uh, such a capacity that he can't do that you know he has to do things on paper or he has to do things in certain regulated ways and uh, and Wouter then you know was expressing his own experience uh, doing something very similar in Flanders yeah and you know, it's just those those perspectives like that. And that's something – you see, maybe that's part of why I don't feel the need to move over to, to Mastodon because I have conversations <laughs> like that with other archaeologists on this podcast and on the uh, on the Slack channel uh, mm -hmm. and on some discords that I'm on and some, some various other places where it's, you know, like minds with different perspectives – which is definitely valuable, you know, and it's definitely fun. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, so Walter contributes all the time and, uh, and always has good and insightful things to say based off of his own experiences. And so, you know, he had the, uh, the commentary on that, uh, on that recent interview with Marco. And, uh, and that was interesting nice. to see, um, you know, how different people attack the same sorts of problems or how they're not necessarily encountering them in the field. Like, as I said, in that thread how I'm not really encountering a whole lot about about rules and regulations about how I conduct my field work when I'm working in the Middle East. They just don't exist. There are expectations right. as an academic, there are expectations 
to the Department of Antiquities in the various countries of what I have to do, but it's not regulated in the same way that CRM is in this country. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, like I said, a lot of interesting discussions happen over here. We need more people to not only engage the ones that we have that are members, but also we'd love to have more members, if not just to have these kinds of discussions in a, basically a, it's really a closed forum, right? I wouldn't say it's private. Mm-hmm. We, we don't say anything in here is like sacred, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's kind of understood that it is a little bit because it's a little bit of a private club, but uh, and you, you have to be invited over here to, uh, you know, to participate. So in that respect, it kind of is, but you know, we really, what we really need is a moderator. So I'll just put a little bit of a plea out in segment one here, hoping, hoping more people hear it than not. If you find yourself in having two different characteristics, one, you're a relatively social person conversing with social media and, you know, being online and those sorts of things. And you don't mind that. And two, you listen to all, if not most of the podcasts on the APN (laughs) in real time (laughs) as they come out. That's a tall order, but we have tens of thousands of people that are listening to this show right now on the all shows feed. So I know that, you know, that feed gets 20 to well, 25 to 40,000 downloads a month. And there are a lot of people over there that are listening on that feed. So if you're listening on that feed, that means you're hearing everything as it comes out. And if you're one of those people that are listening to it in near real time, we would love a volunteer in that Slack channel to get a free APN account and go over there and help stimulate conversation. Just, you know, listen to the episode like anybody else would and ask some questions in the channels and and see if we can get people to start these conversations because some people are just finger shy and they don't want to go in there and type, but they're more than happy to comment if they see something coming in. So we need people to go in and do that. I would love to be that person and have that be my thing, but I'm just stuck editing all the time. So (laughs) as soon as I'm done doing that and I can get somebody else to edit, that's the first paid job at the APN. I've said that a million times, but if, uh, uh, if I can ever get that off my plate, then I, I want to be more engaged in all these other ways, but it just can't happen unless we have the content and we don't have the content unless I get, get this stuff edited. So, all right. Well with that, I think let's just go ahead and take a break. This was the social media segment and we'll get into the article <laughs> in the next two segments <laughs> and, uh, see what we can learn about photogrammetry and the way these authors are using it. It's pretty cool. Stay tuned for that. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to episode 194 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we're going to talk about an article that was in the November 2022 issue of Advances in Archaeological Practice. If you don't have access to that, it's through your SAA membership. If you're not an SAA member, well, I would say head over to the link in the show notes and it's on Cambridge University Press. That's where the SAA holds all their articles from an official standpoint. You could buy it if you want to, but you can also contact one of the authors by clicking on their name. They usually have email contact or just search for their name and their um, their institution online and you can find it. And they'll more than likely be happy to send you an article. As we mentioned in the last episode, the authors for the article, which is titled A Photogrammetry Assisted Methodology for the Documentation of Complex Stratigraphic Relationships. They're always a mouthful. The authors are <laughs> Brent Whitford, Karen, well, I'm going to get all these wrong too, by the way. Karen, <laughs> I, I should have try? you do it. Cayman, <laughs> let, me, let me do it. Let me try it. You know what? You do it because these are more in your wheelhouse. No, no, <laughs> these no, names no, are. It's on you now. <laughs> all right. All right. Really. So, well, Brent Whitford, I've got Brent's name. <laughs> um, and then Cayman Boyajev, Boyajev, um, Miroslav Ivanov, Konstantin, oh man, Tufekchev, and Yavor Boyajev. Oh, I wonder if they're related. Hmm. Two two people with the same last name. I don't know if that's oh, a common last name that. or if it's the same last name relation. But yeah. anyway, 
Paul, I didn't have access to this article because I had to renew my essay membership. I have read it since you sent it to me about 40 minutes ago mm-hmm. <laughs> and I read your notes. But why don't you give us a give us a brief and get us started on this? Right. So uh, this one, I, I love mining AAP for uh, for content and mm-hmm. every every issue that comes out, uh, you know, half the titles, the article titles in it look interesting to me. And this one immediately looked interesting to me. It looked interesting to me specifically because in the last few episodes of the podcast and talking with Marco, photogrammetry has been coming up a lot. It, it's turned yeah. the corner from, you know, a few years ago, we did a, a, an episode on, a, on structure from motion. And to me, it was very novel at the time. And the documentation about how one did it at the time in the article that we were reviewing back then made it seem like a fairly bespoke sort of approach, not not something you would just do uh, out of, as a matter of course. And mm-hmm. starting last spring, when at Lagash, the field director, Sara Pizzimenti, just brought along her uh, DJI mini drone and would just fly it and do photogrammetric models every day of her trench. <laughs> I, <laughs> casually, just yeah, because that's what, why not? I can do that. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, really opened my eyes to, you know, I can't be mystifying this. And this goes also to the question of, you know, does digital really mean much anymore in archaeology? Because this just a few years ago was a very special tool. And now it's useful to the point of people aren't thinking about it too much. They're just doing it. Uh, and, mm-hmm. But for me, one of the big issues I've had, even though I've seen some really great work done with photogrammetry, is can we use it to reconstruct the volume of the soils that we're moving, of the features and and uh, and context and so on? The answer is yes, I know we can, but I hadn't seen anybody actually doing that with my own eyes. I mean, I should have ta- talked to Marco about it because I think that that's something he's been doing. Mm-hmm. And I wondered how one would approach it. And so the, the title of this article made me immediately think, okay, this is maybe going to tell me how to do it. Unfortunately, it paid off. It does tell me how they did it. It tells me like these AAP articles often do in a lot of detail, you know, with this software and that uh, that menu item and so on, which for me isn't the most interesting thing. Um, I don't think it's particularly useful. Uh, for some people it is, uh, but I want to see just the general process. And let me back out a little here. I love cooking. Right. I cook all the time. I never cook from recipes, but if I'm trying to cook something new, I'll kind of half use a recipe until I grok what they're trying to do <laughs> and then stop using the recipe and just do it myself. <laughs> you know? So a lot of the AAP articles are recipes, but because it's, you know, they're software based and big software changes all the time. I don't know how long live those recipes are going to be. You know, they right. might be expired a year from now. Right. But well-written, well-argued, the underlying ideas behind it go between, you know, a recipe telling you to chop up half an onion and some celery, you know, this much celery and that many carrots, you know, this size, saute them in uh, in olive oil for this long until they're, you know, tender or whatever, versus a recipe that says, yeah, make a mirepoix. <laughs> yeah. Both of those are valid ways, but the important thing is to know how to make a mirepoix. <laughs> and uh, and this article gives you the step by step for a few of the things, but mostly it's about making that mirepoix. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that really caught my eye about the title, 
and I haven't gotten past the title yet, is the uh, <laughs> documentation of complex stratigraphic relationships. And I thought, yeah. okay, complex stratigraphic relationships, that, that's it. Because I could figure out a process for doing this with, you know, big things, with walls and whatnot. But sure. All the sites where it would really matter would be complex stratigraphic relationships. And so I thought, you know, knowing from sites I've worked on, yeah, I've worked on some of those sites. And then flipping through, as one does before actually digging into the article, wow, they're figure four, they show up <laughs> <of> their trenches. <laughs> <laughs> and complex yeah. doesn't even come close. I mean, I look at the, they've got a, an overhead shot, an ortho mosaic, and the, also a color illustration of that same level. And that color illustration positively makes me itch. <laughs> there are so many like post holes and pits <laughs> and different layers, There's things going on all at once. It's amazing the detail that they're doing. So, it it looks like, like a Jackson Pollock painting. If anybody it can really pull that does, it's in just their head. a splatter all over, except for with that face right in the middle. You see right, that face? right, the guy with the flat black cap. Oh, I can I can see it. Yeah, <laughs> I pulled that out too. Anyhow, so seeing that, I thought, okay, well, you know what? I, I believe them when they say complex stratigraphic relations. Mm -hmm. That is very complex, and clearly they care about reproducing it. So. That's why I decided, you know, hey, maybe I might learn how to make that mirepoix and maybe I'll learn about it from people who clearly are better cooks than I am. Uh, you know? <laughs> so that's why I dug into it. Okay. Well, just to set the stage of what we're talking about here, this is from a site called Tell Unit Site. Is it, am I saying that right? Do you think? Unit Site? Does that sound about uh, I don't know if it's Unit Site. I looked at it online on Wikipedia. And it's got a bunch of different names. Uh, unit yeah. Site, Unatsita. I'm not sure how it's pronounced because I don't know Bulgarian. Yeah, I don't know either. Is that E on the end like pronounced or is it just like site like we would say? I doubt it's like what we would say in English. But anyway, yeah. uh, it's it's in Bulgaria. Uh, it's been excavated since 2000. Uh, well, they've been excavating it since 2013. And the first excavations over 1939, right? Yeah, that's what they said. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, it says they have levels dating from the Neolithic through the medieval periods with some gaps in between. So there is just there's a lot of use that's been on this site throughout time. And that's not, I would say, uncommon, especially for that area. You know, we I mean, we've seen sites like that all the time in the United States as well. Mm hmm where you've got just a complex relationship, especially along waterways or resources or something like that, where you're just going to have, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries of, of reoccupation and use by maybe the same people, probably different people, who knows, but different technologies and things through time. So documenting that and visualizing it is a complex task. Now, the site itself, they said tell. I was like, there are tell sites in that part of the world? But um, but when you see the uh, aerial imagery of it uh, and the reconstructed DTM of it, yeah, it, it, it's a tell site. And th that being mm -hmm. that people have gone to that same spot of land repeatedly over the millennia and done their stuff. And as people do things, they accumulate trash where they live and right. structures and everything else. Uh, and so it's layered up you know, occupation upon occupation, activity upon activity to form a human-made hill. And that's what a tell mm -hmm. is. And that's what this site is. Their interest, uh, well, so I think it must be from the 1939 excavations. That hill is very round and it's bisected hmm. right down the middle. 
And <laughs> right. half of that top has been cleared off. And then you can see in the photos a bunch of you know five by five uh, trenches, which must be theirs. So I'm guessing that those earlier excavations back in the era of big digs dug away that whole top half. But where they're right. starting from is um, is early uh, to late Calcolithic. Well, they're starting from late Calcolithic going down to early Calcolithic levels. And I think they said something like 11 different levels there that they've Jeez. been in so far. And it looks like they still have a few more meters to go in the site before they hit the level of the plane. So it's, it's a mm -hmm. substantial site. And again, that the complex stratigraphic relations, it looks like they're trying to dig it very carefully, very stratigraphically with really complete documentation. And it's that complete documentation that allows them then to do what the, you know, the meat of this, uh, of this article is the photogrammetry. It's interesting to me with the figure two shows the uh, shows that you can see that that bisecting of the tell site. And then it shows the the models that they've built, you know, around that from the what it, what it originally would have looked like and then what it looks like now mm -hmm. as well. And it's impressive to me the discipline that has been shown here for the last 80 years to not dig that other half, <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you, right? Like how often yeah. do you see that where it's like bisected right down the middle and they just continue excavating over here, probably with the thought that it's much the same on the other side, I would assume, unless there's something really special over there. But I guess what are the chances of that? I don't know much about tell sites and what this could be, you know, could that be something like they haven't found the thing that a tell site would have in this area? I don't really know, but, um, to not dig that over there provides a, a nice little preservation example and and just a, a cross section right down the middle. Yeah, just sliced. It's it's really it's, <laughs> it's a sight to behold. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they say here that the dating of the um, sites in this period in the early to late Calcolithic is not clear. And they do say that that's probably related to the need for better radiocarbon calibration curves for the region. So dating is an issue. Uh, one of the issues that they're working with here. Mm -hmm. And they say that the method they've come up with will allow for better stratigraphic documentation and help address the, you know, better stratigraphic documentation. Basically, they're hoping will start addressing some of the dating issues that are in the site mm -hmm. and in the surrounding sites. So that's why they're uh, using this technique to try to try to do that a little better. Yeah. So it's a bit of a call to arms too. It's like, hey, look at how well we yeah. can document this incredibly complex site. If we teach other people how to do the same, then maybe we can start having the same conversation. So they raise this as one of the points early on in the article, but then they don't actually dig into that. The rest of it becomes more and more technical um, about what they did and why they did. Mm-hmm. So to cut to the chase here, essentially what their method does, it allows them to create section drawings anywhere across a trench without having to leave bulks. Yeah. Right. So normally, right, you dig your your five by five, your ten by ten, your two by two, whatever it is, and you have the bulk as a witness for the strata that you didn't notice as you're digging down or I didn't notice. <laughs> right. I don't want to do. Like, um, what's that layer doing over there? Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I thought it seemed a little darker there. But yeah, when you see it in section, yeah. holy cow, that's a fire pit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a terrible digger. I, I admit it. Um, I love it, but I'm I, I can't do it unsupervised. <laughs> <laughs> I need somebody better than me. Nice. Otherwise, yeah. back to the food analogy. I'm going to burn it. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. You know, this crazy thing about these bulks. I see these when we read articles from uh, really, you know, Europe, the Middle East, these these regions over here, um, Eastern Europe. You you see it all over there. But I have 
almost, I can't think of a single time when I've excavated in that way in the United States. And I've done a lot of excavation mm. in Nevada and I've did a lot of excavation down in the Southeast and a little bit up in the, the Northeast of the United States. And we just went, we, I mean, we just opened up another unit and just kept on digging. We, if it was a one by yeah. one in a block excavation, we just kept on doing it. Now we usually did it in 10 centimeter levels. So every 10 centimeters, we would have a floor plan uh, on mm-hmm. our notes so there's that and and those could probably be reconstructed for some sort of sort of rough 3d model you know a low resolution 3d model but mm-hmm. uh aside from that we did not record those those bulks so i think a photogrammetric method would be good for something like digging where i've done because if you're if you're taking images periodically as you're going down and creating those layers then you can do a lot with that later on yeah yeah I mean, it requires the discipline, which again is something that they seem to have on this. The traditional way of leaving lots of balks is called the Wheeler Wheeler Kenyon box grid, uh, and that's yeah. you know leaving a, a. It looks almost like they're even though the disparaging of it in the article, it looks almost like that's what they're doing here. These are five by five units, but they all have very defined bo- uh, balks around them, and that's actually not a way I've tended to excavate myself on the projects, but I think that's because most of the arc, most of the projects I've worked on have been in the Middle East and they've been architecture mm. focused. And so once you hit walls and such, depending on the strategy, oftentimes you'll follow those architectural spaces instead of your arbitrary, you know, north, south, east, west grid. But that that varies project to project. Anyhow, uh, the dependency on leaving the bulks then for the Wheeler Canyon grid, box grid system means that you cut up your your site in ways that make it hard sometimes to connect from one end to another or from one mm. trench to another, from one unit to another. To deal with that, another thing that they also kind of throw away is uh, the Harris matrix. And I don't care for the Harris matrix myself. I understand why people find it useful and I understand why it's in the workflow of so many projects. But they hit for me the nail right on the head as to why they they say, and I'm just going to quote straight out of it. It says, an additional method, the Harris matrix, although useful, is merely a representation of stratigraphic relationships in 2D diagram form that provides no visual facsimile of the field from which to make further assessments, interpretation, or corrections. So it's right. for me, it's that it's that transposing of the the layers from this kind of organic sense of what's interrelated with everything else to uh, a very sterile grid system, you know, for 2D representation. And for me, I lose a lot there. It's Mm. like going between tasting the food and just reading the ingredients list. Right. Yeah, I hear you. Well, I think with that, we will take a break and just incidentally, and I'll leave this in the show notes, but back at the, what was it? The 2017 SAAs in Vancouver, Mm. Canada, I interviewed Edward Harris, the inventor of the Harris matrix. Yeah. On the archeology span show episode 13. I I knew I did it. I had to look it up on the APN while you were mentioning that. And uh, I'll drop that link in the show notes because it was really, uh, it was really interesting. That was a great episode. And I remember it and I listened to it and I was like, afterwards i'm like okay i gotta give this another try and i went and i tried to give it another try and i came away still hate it yeah still not for me well not hate it because i don't think it's a bad thing i think it's a very good thing and very useful but it just does not work the way my brain works and so you know it doesn't help i hear you yeah 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 i never really used it either 
So once they mentioned that, I was all in on the article because, you know, at that point, they'd hit all the things, the complex stratigraphic relationships, the photogrammetry. Hey, we've got a way of doing it. Hey, if you use our method, you know, we can we can have a conversation. Oh, and there are these other things that might potentially be useful, but we don't think so for these reasons. And, uh, you know, so I was all in at that point. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a break and come back and wrap this article up back in a minute. Welcome back to the Archaeotech podcast, episode 194. And we are talking about photogrammetry being used in a, I wouldn't say a new way, but definitely a more robust way than we've probably seen in the past, at least in our, the journal articles that we've read. So, Paul, let's get to the meat of this. You really dove into some of their data and methods and, and things like that. What, what are they doing? Okay, well, <laughs> the meat of it. You're getting hungry too, huh? <laughs> I'm absolutely hungry. Dinner's right around the corner. <laughs> yeah, I'm starved. Uh, okay, so, so basically they start out with a DTM of the site and from that they create a, a solid 3D model. So they, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just the surface, but it's also extruded downward some arbitrary depth so it goes down deeper than the um than the surrounding field, right? Uh, I'm yeah. not entirely sure why they start with this actually because it doesn't reflect anything else or it's not obviously reflected in any other part of the article. I think though it's so that they can have, you know, a, a baseline that they can then essentially re-excavate the uh the the units uh mm-hmm. that they're digging. And then they can use that for comparison for comparisons between various set trenches between the different excavation units. Uh they're excavating in a 5 by 5 meter grid like I said before, with balks between them. So it's almost, uh, you know, the Wheeler Kenyon box. And then every time they're excavating very slowly and stratigraphically. So they're not doing arbitrary depths, though I think you could adapt this this system to an excavation strategy that uses arbitrary depths. But they're mm-hmm. really relying on the skill of their excavators to recognize the strata cool. and the various contexts as they're going down. So Which again, is tough. this is... This is tough and, you know, kudos to them for being able yeah. to do that. Again, that that figure showing the, the complexity of all the context just in one layer yeah. is, is phenomenal. So I have excavated stratigraphically before, but it was nothing this complex, right? Like we used, we did that in the Southeast where there, you go down a meter and a half and there's three strats, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's all sand. <laughs> so, you know, not that big of a deal, to be honest. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, we uh, excavate something like this in uh, in at Lagash, and with great results. Now that uh, that everybody's kind of getting the hang of it, and again, this is I mentioned earlier with Sara Pizimenti, this is the way that she insists that you know the trenches that are under her field directorship. I don't know what they're <laughs> under her overview are are dug, and it's it's really quite a skill. And it's a skill that I personally don't have, but to watch people that can do it uh, and the kinds of detail that they can pull out is amazing. So they're starting with that. Once they get to a new stratum, they overlay a one by one meter string grid to help with the uh, photography and the illustration. And this is something I believe Mm -hmm. in the way they talk about, this is something that they've been doing for a long time, that they did it from before they were doing photogrammetry on this project. And that's something that we've seen before on other, on, you know, I've worked with string grids, either, you know, nail them in, you know, sure. into the bulks and draw them across, or even sometimes where you have a, a frame with the strings across it. That yeah. You lay down over, right. Yeah. Uh, so that's something that people have been using for decades. Anyhow, because of the method that they're doing, they're still doing that. 
And so they, they dig in their five by fives. When they get to a new stratum, they overlay the string grid. They do all these photographs. Now they do extra photographs because they want to turn into photogrammetry. They still do the illustration. You know me, I'm big on people still illustrating. <laughs> but now they've got that, that grid that they can use for aligning and scaling their, uh, their SFM, right. their structure for motion photogrammetry models, right? So they, they kind of stumbled into ground control points, into GCPs with this grid, which is, I think, you know, yeah. brilliant and fortuitous and, uh, and cool <laughs> in, in so many levels. And so they're using that and they're uh, using what? I think they said they were using Metashape. They go into a lot of detail about the settings and about the 2.5D and the sparse point cloud and all that stuff that, frankly, I don't care about. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think it's useful. I, I, because there's so many different ways of getting very good photogrammetric models now. You know, it might have been useful a few years ago. It almost certainly was important and useful when they started the project. Right. But right now, it doesn't doesn't do much for me. Anyhow, they get that uh, that model, and then they move into Blender of all places. Now, Blender is typically conceived of as a uh, a 3D modeling and uh, an animation program, but it's mm-hmm. open source. It's extremely powerful. It's deep. It's hard to kind of get your brain around initially, and once it clicks, people love it. So it's interesting to me, and I think good in their whole workflow that that's where they're doing the majority of their work. In fact, they have a digression about doing some work that they were trying to do in ArcGIS. Because, you know, hey, it's in GIS and it's going to be better <laughs> that way. And, uh, you know, all good are all the time. And it turns out that they run into all sorts of problems with it. Uh, it doesn't yeah. render, things crash, things don't work. So they go back to Blender where they can do it pretty easily. You know? nice. So, nice. Uh, and again, back to the thing about the, the all the details, they do explain all the little details of how they do things in Blender. In this case, I think it's more important though, because this is where you start to understand, I start to understand how they are turning these photogrammetric models into a real 3D space of all these contacts interlocking, you know, mm-hmm. as if you were to take a chunk of soil out and have it. And that's something that you and I have discussed a lot in the past about having documentation that could permit somebody in the future to reinterpret. You know, my master's right. paper was on reinterpreting some of Woolley's excavations at the Royal Cemetery, Cemetery of Ur. But when we talk about archaeology as a science, one of the big things of science is reproducibility, which we don't have if you're excavating, right? You can't re-excavate something. We teach, you know, archaeology 101 students that right away is that, yeah, you'll never be able to re-excavate. So what do you have to do? You have to document really well. What they're doing here is documenting really well, very organic shapes that have a chronology inherent to them. And have human activities inherent to that chronology and they're capturing that. Um, And so Mm -hmm. anyhow, they get each level modeled and then they extrude it downwards so that it would intersect the next lower level. It doesn't have, it can be any arbitrary depth. It just has to be deep enough to hit the next level down. Which is cool. That that's the part I think is, is really neat because I haven't heard people talking about really doing that before. Right. No. And that's where, and then it gets even smarter. They're doing it in blender. So then they take that, photogrammetric model from the next level down and they slice the bottom side of Mm -hmm. that top model with the next lower level down and they keep on doing that Uh, i think they said they had some like 80 different models uh units 
Yeah. Oh, no, models. Uh, I can't recall <laughs> of these things. But then it gets more complex because that'd be fine if you just had a simple stratum that went from you know one bulk to the other bulk, north, south, east, west, and maybe it's a little bumpy or a little sloped or whatever. And then you've got another stratum directly underneath. But what they have are, like I said earlier, tons of little pits and post holes and use areas and all sorts of stuff. I'm not sure exactly how they're defining their strata because I can't quite see it in the um, – in their illustrations doesn't matter. Sure. I, I at this point I trust what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But then to get all those little contexts, what they do is they remember I said they were doing illustrations. They mm-hmm. make shape files of those illustrations, scaled and everything in GIS. They import those shape files with a plugin that I didn't know existed uh, for G- importing shape files into Blender another open source project and they've got it linked in their in the article uh they mm-hmm. import those shape files and then they slice those contexts out of the solids that they just made in blender with those shape files and they That's call awesome. it um, like a cookie cutter which was funny yeah. because when I I was reading, I was like, oh, that's kind of like a cookie cutter. And then they, they <laughs> say cookie cutter. And here we are at food again. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so I'm one thing that's unclear to me is that these shapes are organic. And if you have a cookie cutter, you would end up with kind of cylindrical shapes. Yeah. Right. Or straight, straight walled. And that's not what they show in their final result. They everywhere else, they talk in lots of detail about how they do it and here they kind of gloss over it Hmm. something about voxels and smoothing uh, but i don't know how you don't end up with either cylinders or something that looks like wedding cakes or upside down wedding cakes like you see um well you'd be familiar with this chris like you see of um airspace right yeah yeah for sure down air uh wedding cake model of of different classes of airspace I don't know how they get from that to something that that's nice and smooth that shows like the roundness of a pit. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of interpolation going on as well, you know, when they create these yeah. models. And I guess it really just depends on, you know, they're digging stratigraphically, but when you're coming down and you encounter some a soil change, right? You encounter something mm-hmm. different and then you start digging down around it. Maybe you leave that for a little while and then, you know, then you go into it or maybe they're they're excavating it, everything down uniformly but then mapping as they go but the as they go part is the one that will determine that shape right because yeah what is when do they stop and measure <laughs> that's what will help I mean, determine the shape <laughs> yeah so i do think looking again at that figure four the the, the uh, ortho photo of it I mm-hmm. think that each one of those little different, you know, a hundred different contexts that you see with different yeah. colors and textures on the right, I think each one of those gets fully removed. And once it's all fully removed down to some base layer, that's what they call a stratum. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Uh, but that would mean that the that roundness of the context, the organic shapes, rather than being, you know, these cylinders sliced through cookie cutter style, would be reflected then captured in the photogrammetry that's what i Mm. think is going on but i'm not sure and again that that's of all the places that they had more detail than i cared about this is the one that really really i wanted to know and i don't have quite (laughs) enough detail there and i think it's just because there there's some baseline assumptions about the way that they're excavating that i don't necessarily understand i would you know have to have a conversation and have to be on site yeah. and see exactly what they're doing to 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 fully get that for sure 
I mean, this is this is super cool. And it seems like something that I mean, obviously, you need knowledge of how to put all this stuff together. But the the collection of the data is something that could be done by almost any archaeological team on the planet right now. Right. Um, You're Mm -hmm. already doing the steps necessary for the most part to be able to get here. You just need the equipment to be able and the knowledge to be able to take the photographs, do the right drawings, take the right points and, and that sort of thing. So just modifying your data collection methods or augmenting them a little bit. And you could actually do this and it would, it would not strike me as odd at all. If one of these grad students or professors or whoever that is doing this, you know, ends up starting a company someday where they're just like, here's the kit. Here's all the stuff you need that we need to make your models for you. Collect all the data, send us back the equipment and we'll send you all the models when we're done. Right. But but people are still, we're still in the phase where people are still just like figuring this out as they go. They're reading articles like this. They're listening to podcasts. They're, they're figuring out, okay, well, this one said they use this. This one said they use this. I think I'm going to try this and then this. And they're like you said, they're not really they're, they're kind of using a recipe, but there is no recipe. It's just like, here's mm-hmm. what I want. And it's been done a hundred different ways. So I'm hoping we get to the point soon where there's really a, there really is a, a solid way to do this. I mean, obviously there'd be some variation depending on, you know, certain variables, but there, there really should be just a, a handful of ways to start from, you know, nothing and get to these models that we want and, uh, and make it replicatable. So hopefully we can get there soon. But it's pretty tech heavy. It's pretty high knowledge you need, like to get into Blender and and even ArcGIS and and uh, whatever the hell they call uh, shape. Uh, meta, is it MetaShape? I think I always forget. I think they started what with MetaShape, but I'm, I, yeah, yeah, that's the current yeah. name of the the software. Right, right. So, anyway, it, it's promising. More stuff like this is what we need. Yes. More people figuring this stuff out. I love it. And before we go, I'm just going to um, to point out that they graphed all this onto their existing workflow because they were excavating a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were documenting in a certain way. This became an add-on. The The other add-on to yeah. it, a little bit of equipment, a little bit of software. They give some prices. They give some time that it takes these things. Um, a fair amount of know-how and an individual with that know-how that can then be devote a lot of their time in the field to doing that. And that's something that Marco and I talked about on the last episode, You know how much time he yeah. spends processing, but also then managing his data, right? And that's something mm-hmm. else they mentioned in this article that it also <laughs> proves it, is that they ha- they tell their their DMP, their data management plan at the end of the article, um, or toward the end of the article, explain what they do, how they name the files, how they store them. And that's something that matters to me because we're in the midst of grant writing right now for the Lagash project, and that's a big part of what we have to document is what our DMP is. And so far, we... We've been very good about keeping lots of data, but it's not structured. It's not organized in certain ways, and we need to formalize that. Right. So for me, it was another little piece of, oh, here's how some people are doing it, just like my interview with Marco. Is, here's how one person who I know does good work is doing it. You know, a lot of things that I can just kind of mull over. Again, back to that uh, <laughs> watching the chef, it's, you know, it's watching Julia Child, Jacques Pepin, whatever, on their cooking show, and maybe not following along step for step, but getting a sense of you know what the the triggers are, you know what what are they trying to get out of the heat or the oil or the salt or the whatever it is that they're working with at the moment for an end result, and 
regardless of all the, the the finicky little details that might go into this article or go into that that recipe, it's the the overall how you get to something that is good and acceptable at the end that I think they they managed to thread nicely in the article. And you know, so I am a little bit richer for having read it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I love it, and like I said, it's it's really cool that you might be able to use some of it uh, at Lagash and at least their data management plan and, you know, take something from it. And I hope other people Mm -hmm. can too. So I don't think I have much more to say on this. You Paul. Oh no, I've said plenty about it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. Well, you know what? It's interesting that we had, uh, and this doesn't count for the drinking game. You people out there. It's interesting that we had an entire discussion about photogrammetry and didn't once say the word drone. I'm just saying. (laughs) Though to their credit, they do mention drones in the article. <laughs> right. But they do. <laughs> they do. Yeah. So they have to take a drink. <laughs> but th- exactly. But that's one. That's another one of those things that I just love about where we're at right now in early 2023 is that mm-hmm. we didn't we didn't have to mention drones. We don't have to mention how do you take photographs. We don't have to mention those things. It's just I didn't have a chance to read this fully and, and into the really detailed sections of these, but I would imagine they're using not only, you know, the aerial drone photography, but also photographs of units close in and things like that to kind of bring all this yep. together into a thing. And, and that's just, that's just the standard suite of photographs that you take. But that's the thing is it's kind of standard now, right? If you're going to do this, you know that that's another piece of equipment and skill set that you need to have and it'll be and able to be able to really get it done. Right. Actually, and that's uh, where I'll just end my last comment is that kind of standard. This is the next little piece of the puzzle. This is where it pushes beyond just making your photogrammetric model with Metashape or Drone Deploy or uh, Open Drone Map or whatever you're using, which a lot of people are doing now to everybody's credit and to everybody's benefit, but pushing Mm -hmm. it beyond that to, okay, let's try to actually reconstruct a site yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So that that's another thing I really like about it, too, is that reconstruction aspect of it. Because mm. archaeology is, and especially excavation, is inherently destructive. We are never going to see that site again in the same way that it was. That being said, I might be able to take something like this someday and just play with the entire thing in my Oculus Quest 2. Right. Just jump into it, move some some levels around, see what it looked like originally, you know, push everything Mm -hmm. back with my hands and just dive down a couple of levels and see what it looks like there. Pull this shape out, pull this context out, you know, just like, you know, Iron Man, you know, (laughs) the Iron Man movie where he's manipulating all that stuff like with his hands, just something like that. And I see that we're, we're getting really close to having the data to be able to do that. We may not have the tools to do that yet, but we're creating the products that we're going to need to be able to do that with. So I love it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll say goodbye and we will see you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.